What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia-Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Dr. Christine Ho, the co-founder and CEO of Imprint Energy. Imprint is the company created to commercialize Christine's innovation, a tiny zinc-based solid-state battery that can be screen printed. It's being integrated into sensors and other tiny devices helping power the Internet of Things. Today, Imprint is licensing its technology to multiple manufacturers and is printing hundreds of thousands of batteries. Christine's father was an entrepreneur, and she saw the difficulties that come from starting a company firsthand. She still followed in his footsteps and has faced her own tumult. In this interview, I spoke with Christine about her technology and the highs and lows of living the entrepreneurial life. This conversation was recorded at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in January of 2020. Christine, welcome to the special edition of What It Takes. We're recording this episode in our studio at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland. Thank you, Emily. So you are the co-founder and CEO of Imprint Energy, and you print batteries. Mm -hmm. You can print them into really interesting shapes and sizes that are ultra-thin and flexible, including ones that are credit card size. Your batteries have higher energy density and are safer than lithium-ion battery products, um, and they're printed on standard commercial equipment. Uh, Just to start, can you give us an example of some of the use cases for your batteries? Yeah. um, So first off, this... This is all made possible because this chemistry is a green, safe, stable chemistry. And so as a result, we can really um, unleash new design capabilities, new features. Um, One of the key areas that we're focusing on is in the Internet of Things space. Um, This is a space that wants to um, add intelligence and sensors to everything so that we have better information to make decisions about our lives, about the environment, our infrastructure. So if you were to attach um, electronics through, let's say, like a label or um, a patch on your arm to detect some sort of health metric, um, that might give you better information so that you can make uh, good decisions. Um, You know, some of the Big use cases that we're focusing on right now have to do with um, supply chain. Um, for example, 40% of food that's produced is actually wasted in the supply chain due to uh, food spoiling, being left out uh, outside or at the wrong temperature. Um, 35 to 45% of pharmaceutical drugs are broken or um, damaged in the supply chain as well. So there's just a lot of wasted energy um, moving stuff around. And these sensors can tell you exactly where in the process there was a problem and help 
help us fix those uh, processes so they're more efficient, so we're wasting less energy. Um, so our batteries are meant to power these type of IoT products. But you know, ultimately, as we get more validation in the field, I can imagine these batteries everywhere. I think as consumers, we just want safer batteries. We're aware of all the problems that there is with conventional batteries. So um, I can imagine this in, in many different shapes, big and small, many different sort of products, big and small. Great. So as far as how all of this got started, going back to your parents, um, they're both immigrants, your dad from Taiwan, your mom from Hong Kong. I know they both came to the U.S. for college and met here. Um, your dad studied material science and in grad school was introduced to semiconductors. He worked for Texas Instruments and Intel, did early work on cell phones. And when you were 14, he quit his job to start a semiconductor company. And in high school, I know you interned at his company and got a sense of what it was like to be a founder. So as a young person, what did you learn about entrepreneurship from your dad? Um, yeah, I I feel really lucky now that I think about it. I think I got a very unfiltered view of um, what it takes to be <laughs> an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I got to see my dad celebrate um, really glorious wins, um, you know, capturing big deals with customers. He brought in $50 million on a, a, a single round of investment and only had to raise money once, wow. you know. So he was really incredible and 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 accomplished a lot of things. Um, I also got to go to trade shows with him and I got to see the pride in his eyes as he was meeting with customers and interacting with colleagues. And that really kind of opened my view about, you know, this professional world beyond um, beyond her home, you know, and, um, and so that was really inspiring. Um, but at the same time, I was exposed to a lot of the shadow side of, of entrepreneurship and, um, you know, and I guess you could say, um, some of the collateral as well. And, and I was a part of mm -hmm. that. So, um, it was hard on my dad at times. He had a hard time dealing with the stress and the anxiety. His health started to really suffer. He had a lot of problems with ulcers. Um, and then, um, my dad wasn't around a lot. He was pretty much living in a plane or in different cities. So, um, you know, for my mom, I could see how hard it was for her. She was like a working single mom raising my brother and I. Um, and I also remember just feeling a lot of resentment at times with my dad not being around, not being able to attend a piano recital or, you know, um, my high school graduation. Um, so, I think I got a really balanced perspective on all the aspects of um, sort of the highs and lows of entrepreneurship and how it might affect um, the people that you care mm -hmm. about around you um, that are supporting you through that as well. Mm. What did he say then? What was his response when you decided to start Imprint? You know, it's really interesting because um, at first he really didn't want me to start the company. He 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 said that he didn't want that life for me. I think knowing what he went through and and how hard it was at times, um, I think he really wanted to protect me from that. So um, he wasn't exactly enthusiastic, mm -hmm. and I was surprised. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I had I had followed in his footsteps, becoming a material scientist, and this was sort of. Uh, uh, sort of a natural next next step being that um, he was a CEO and entrepreneur um, before. So I, I thought that, you know, this was a no-brainer. He'd be really excited, but he was really concerned at first. Um, but, you know, nowadays he's like my best friend and the, the best advisor. Um, he's the person I can call when I feel like the whole world is falling apart and he'll just giggle at me and, you know, and tell me that everything will be fine as, as hard as it seems mm -hmm. today. And, and he's actually even traveled with me on a couple of business trips and he was my Chinese interpreter for a couple um, customers and investors. So we've had a really good time. I've, um, this has been one of the, the best sort of outcomes of starting Imprint was um, having this sort of new area, um, this new kind of playground for me and my dad to, to get to know each other even better. So um, I've been really grateful for that. Mm, that's so special. Um, so you mentioned you did follow in his footsteps and you also studied material science at UC Berkeley. Um, you did your master's and PhD there. What was your experience through school like? Um, yeah, so I was Berkeley. I was at Berkeley for a long time. I was there for a decade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, at first it was it was tough. I, I don't think I really understood what material science was, um, but I got really lucky my sophomore year. 
I um, joined a, a research group and started working for a grad student um, and they were looking at batteries. And um, in particular, the grad student that I work with, his name is Dan Steingart. He's actually a professor now at, at Columbia. Um, he was just really passionate about solving the hardest problems and batteries are really, really hard. <laughs> and so of course, you know, he was obsessed with batteries and that was really infectious. I just got really into it, um, hanging, hanging around him. Um, the other thing I think that was, uh, left a really big impression on me was that, um, working with him, it wasn't transactional. He treated me like family. And I think to this day, I still template how I build, um, a team, um, how I work with people. Um, oh, I built that around, you know, what I learned from him and how he treated me. So I really appreciate that. And it's cool. We're still both in the battery field and <laughs> we're both battery nerds still. <laughs> um, and, and remind me, you, you grew up in San Diego, right? Mm -hmm. And your first time to the Bay Area was undergrad at Cal. Yeah. I, well, when I was younger, we actually lived in in um, the Bay Area for a little bit. But I've, I've been in San Diego for most of my life and grew up there. And so, um, you know, when I applied to schools, um, at the time, you know, being a California resident, there was um, sort of uh, an incentive to going to the UC schools. And so I wanted to get away from home as mm -hmm. much as possible, as far as possible. Um, and and Berkeley was was the place. Um, and I remember uh, when I came to visit campus, I was just like, you know, this is an awesome place. I really want to be here. So it was a no brainer. Great. Um, as a grad student in 2005, you and your advisor, who you mentioned, got funding from the California Energy Commission to explore the original Internet of Things, putting sensors on everything so that data could inform better decisions. Um, and so your focus went from these big battery problems to sensor problems. Mm -hmm. What was unique about the battery and sensor work that you were doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, when I when I was an undergrad, um, everybody was looking at car batteries and traditional lithium ion chemistries. And we were just trying to squeeze as much energy density out of these materials. And I was in the same boat as everybody else. Um, but when we shifted towards looking at the internet of things and motivated by the California energy commission and their, um, you know, their, their, their vision, we realized that all these conventional batteries and these conventional ways for making batteries wouldn't apply to the next generation of electronics. Um, a lot of these systems are a lot smaller or they're more intimately involved in our lives and um, in a way where we couldn't take those sort of safety risks. Um, uh, so, you know, from a chemistry perspective, from a manufacturing perspective, we just decided to look at things differently. Um, so that kind of made us, we oftentimes joke that we were sort of like, um, you know, the orphans at Berkeley <laughs> and that we were the only ones, you know, sort of looking at things in a different way. We were looking at all these sort of different chemistries, but it was actually really freeing because mm -hmm. we could build um, the battery that we wanted. We weren't constrained by what has just been done. And, and um, as a result, you know, I started to get really enamored with uh, printing, uh, 3D printing at the time was a really interesting concept. And I love the idea of, you know, democratizing manufacturing such that it could exist everywhere, not just, you know, in um, low labor cost regions and um, making things on demand so that you're not wasting, you know, materials and whatnot. So got really enamored with printing and then started to think a lot about chemistries as well, like what would be compatible with that and what would be a safe thing to deploy across all these um, new sort of electronic opportunities. So that led us to discovering this zinc chemistry and um, utilizing printing as a way to make them rather than more kind of conventional traditional manufacturing methods. How does it compare to traditional manufacturing methods? Yeah. Well, so first off, um, the printing that we do is much like um, it's, it's screen printing. It's, it's much like printing t-shirt and art. So, you know, age old process, um, it's highly scalable. You can, you can, um, do this in, in mass production, high volume. Um, but what's great about screen printing as you would be making t-shirts is that you can switch things out very quickly and, um, customize it to make, you know, a shape one day and a different shape another. So it was very flexible as well. You didn't have to build, a 
uh, process line for one single widget. Um, and I think that was a, um, a really prudent choice in that, you know, um, as things move forward in terms of like our electronics and things, they're getting more and more customized to our needs and, our, you know, shapes and sizes. So that was definitely an enabling factor. Um, the nice thing about printing too is that there aren't a lot of heavy pieces of machinery. Um, oftentimes now conventional batteries need, you know, more than like a dozen pieces of heavy machinery. They're oftentimes pretty, you know, energy, um, they're not energy efficient. And um, in some cases, run at really high temperatures or whatnot. So in this case, with printing, a lot of things are run at pretty low temperatures. Um, we really just need a printer and oven, and we just kind of loop it through. Um, so oftentimes, when people come to our facility at Imprint, they're kind of like, "This doesn't even look like a battery lab. <laughs> this looks like a print shop." Yeah. And and the beauty is that we've been able to deploy that all over. We've actually mm-hmm. probably deployed over seven or eight different um, pilots in different facilities all over the world, Europe, Asia, US. So this can exist everywhere and it can enable, um, you know, existing manufacturers to suddenly have new business and new opportunities. Mm -hmm. And we love the idea that um, instead of having to build a huge, you know, gigafactory Mm -hmm. for our chemistry, our gigafactory kind of already exists. It's all over the world. Mm -hmm. And um, we just need to really kind of find these these wonderful manufacturers to help us make these batteries. Um, as you were nearing the end of your PhD program, it sounds like you started to get some interesting results from your experiments, um, which is ultimately what led to the creation of Imprint. Um, but it sounds like those results came after 10 years of what you described as failures. Yeah. Um, and so, but, but you published those results and started getting positive feedback from big companies mm-hmm. and specifically somebody named um, Cyrus Wadia, who was the former head of sustainability and innovation for Nike. Um, He was running a program at UC Berkeley at the time that you were there called Clean Tech to Market. And he was somebody who came to you and said, you should really think about commercialization given the results that you're getting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know through the program, you got to um, meet a number of students and worked with one of them who became your co-founder. And so uh, the question is, uh, how did you go from saying these are interesting results to taking the feedback from Cyrus um, and deciding to work with your co-founder and start Imprint? Right. Yeah. You know, when I was um, when I was in the lab, I was just interested in solving the technical problem, and as much failure as there was, um, the failures were just as interesting as the successes. You know realizing why things don't work and then um, making hypotheses on how to make things work. That was really the fun of it all. And so um, I love being in the lab and I love just, you know, hammering at that problem. Um, And so, yeah, when we start to get results and we start to publish, um, there started to be there started to um, get. We started to get this inflow of of interest, and um, I and Cyrus somehow heard about that. And I remember he gave me a call and he said, "Hey, um, have you thought about?" you know, whether or not what you're doing will ever have an impact on the world. And, and, um, it's funny because nobody had ever asked me that question before. And had you not considered it? No, not at all. Yeah. You know, I, I did, I didn't think about, it's funny because I didn't think about commercialization, even, even though like my dad was an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about starting a company as a way for, you know, deploying this technology out into the world. Um, I think I was just, when you're, when you're in your PhD, you, you kind of have tunnel vision. You're just, mm-hmm. you're just really trying to solve a really hard t- uh, scientific problem. So, you know, it's almost like he kind of lifted my head and said, Hey, look around, <laughs> you know, like there's all this interest. Um, but how would you go about doing that? And so, um, and what he offered was to have me, um, uh, participate in his class. And, um, you know, that was, really um, life-changing for me. It was almost like learning a completely new language, um, working with people that weren't necessarily engineers, having to communicate to them, you know, our, what this battery can do, um, hypothesis on value propositions. Um, that class gave us this incredible network of potential customers and partners, investors. And so we had to really articulate what we were making and why it would have any sort of value. Um, and so... Uh, through that, I saw that what we were saying was starting to have real resonance and that feedback created this sort of like emotional drive in me um, to do what Cyrus was was asking me, which is like, you know, push this out into the world and make sure that we can enable really 
um, incredible things. And so, um, yeah, that, that really was a big turning point for me. Um, and just put me on a completely different path than what I, I had been just purely through my PhD program. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5-gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12-gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. I know when most people finish PhDs, they have no money and they haven't really been making any money for a while. Mm -hmm. You said earlier you were in school for 10 years straight at Cal. Um, And so that's exactly the time that you and your co-founder decided to start Imprint. Did you have any capital at the time? And if so, where did it come from? Um, no, when we first started the company, um, so my co-founder Brooks and I, we, we shook hands and then, um, we both went back to our significant others and (laughs) asked them, um, to help support us essentially. And so I live with my, you know, boyfriend now husband rent free and, (laughs) and same with my co-founder and his, his significant other. And we, we didn't take salaries, you know, for a couple years. Um, but the first thing we did was we entered a business competition on campus. It was a small local competition and, um, we we entered it, we pitched, and we actually won. And we got a check for $7,500. And it, <laughs> it created this, it created a lot of emotional validation for us. We're like, you know, we're rich and <laughs> we're ready to get going. Um, so uh, we entered a number of business competitions after that. I think over the course of maybe a year, we probably brought in about $70,000 in business competition winnings. And that early amount of funding gave us the ability to pay Berkeley the equivalent of like a gym membership to stay on campus so that we could incubate and continue to develop the technology, but keep the IP mm-hmm. uh, for Imprint Energy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, hel- it helped us sponsor some of our first employees. So we we paid some interns and our um, earliest employee before we paid ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gave us a little bit of that capital to get going. Um, we also bought our first screen printer. It was $1,000. We call it Big Red. It, <laughs> it looks like it belongs in a circus, <laughs> but it was really effective. And we we made our first demos. Um, and those demos were incredible because it really helped demonstrate to our customers and investors what, how easy it is to, mm-hmm. to make this and, um, how kind of, uh, different, uh, how, how, different of an approach that we were taking. Um, and then, you know, from there, I think momentum just grew. We started to enter uh, grants as well. We, we applied for some grants and then ultimately found some seed funding too. Mm. Um, 
I know that, yeah, you have raised a total of about $24 million to date. Uh, right? 12 million. 12, sorry. <laughs> yeah. 12, the other 12 came from those uh, yeah. non-dilutive sources. Like sorry, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's 12 million in institutional funding right. um, so, um, so from venture capitalists mm-hmm. and um, strategic uh, investors, but another 12 in non-dilutive capital, right? From grants, projects, a lot of customer um, joint development agreements or NRE projects, um, things that helped us kind of continue to develop the technology, but with some directionality towards like a customer application or a pilot. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes I know startups will go from the prize competitions that you mentioned to grants uh, and then eventually to VCs and corporate venture capital. Um, In your case, your first investor uh, was Dow Chemical, who wrote you a check for $500,000 on the spot. How did you do that? Yeah. Um, so first off, Dow found us through Clean Tech to Market. Um, they had the program, at Cal. The, the, the program at Cal. And so, you know, that network, again, was really invaluable. We would have not had the access to them otherwise. And, um, you know, I think they gave a talk at in the class and then they would do these sort of lunch roundtables and each of us would get a chance to talk about what projects we were working on. Um, and so the person from Dow who um, who spoke in, in the class, uh, took a real interest in us and, and started to spend a little bit more time and, um, and then introduced us to, um, their corporate venture, uh, partner. And so I remember we, we had like a short call with the venture partner and then, um, the next step was to meet him in person. And so I think, uh, we met in his hotel lobby in San Francisco, um, and Brooks and I walk into the lobby, not really knowing what to expect. Um, was this and- your first kind of uh, corporate venture meeting? Yeah. Uh, yeah. P- pitch to an investor? Yeah. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't even consider like any interactions that we had with them pitches uh-huh. even. <laughs> <laughs> Considering like what it takes, you know, now um, or knowing like, you know, like the sort of like the extravagant pitch decks you need to have mm-hmm. and all the information. And, and, you know, I think it was, um, it was very early on. Um, so we just had a number of conversations and it, we really had no expectation. We had no experience with other, you know, corporate ventures or, or VCs in general, really. Um, but we walked into the lobby um, and, you know, after a couple of sort of com- uh, questions, um, the venture partner just kind of put his hand out and he was like, let's just do this. And he shook our hands and then, um, yeah. And then we had half a million dollars in our bank account, you know, shortly after that. So were you shocked? Like, did you think that that was a possibility that 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 was a possible outcome of the meeting or were you just completely flabbergasted? No, we, I remember we quietly left the lobby and then we like walked (laughs) two or three blocks and then we just like high fived and screamed and (laughs) it was exciting because, and it's funny because that has never happened to me. But at the time I was like, is this what it, is this what, how you do this? (laughs) Like, yeah, like we, I could do this all day long. And so, um, so yeah, it was a really anomalous experience, but it was really exhilarating, um, and, and just validating on a number of fronts as well. How long had it been since you had paid yourselves before that point? Like how long did you go without taking a salary? I think it was at least a year. I remember... Yeah, I, Brooks and I, we talked about this over and over again because it was tough, you know, because leaning on our significant others um, like that and, um, you know, was it was stressful. And so I remember on a regular basis, you know, we would maybe get a little bit more money in from a competition or a grant and we would have this conundrum of like, do we invest it in the company or to buy things or to pay somebody else or do we put it into our own salaries? And oftentimes we opted to, you know, hold off on paying ourselves because there was something else that we felt that was really pressing. So it was tough at times, um, but eventually, you know, especially with the seat funding coming in, we felt like we could do it. You know, Mm -hmm. we could pay ourselves Mm -hmm. and um, we could finally, you know, get to steady ground um, in terms of our own sort of like personal lives. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sure our significant others really appreciated (laughs) that too. Were they on board from the beginning? Yeah. I mean, uh, my husband now, he he continues to remind me that he was like our first angel investor (laughs) (laughs) and he wants me to remember that. yeah, I mean, uh, and and it's the same thing like with my mom and my dad. Um, you need you need that support at home to really go after you know your your dreams. And I I really appreciated that both um, both my husband and also Brooks' uh, um, wife. Now, uh, you know, they were incredibly encouraging and supportive. We were like family. We met up together a lot and. Um, you know, they, they believed in the vision as much as we did. So Mm -hmm. it was great. That's great. Uh, let's see. 
What have you learned about fundraising? I know now you're in the process of uh, completing a first close on your Series B. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about fundraising through the process? Um, what I've learned is that uh, it's oftentimes a relationship-driven um, exercise. Uh, you know, that story about Dow is a real anomaly. Um, in reality, um, oftentimes you're developing long-term relationships with um, investors or companies. Um, You know, many of them have the patience to watch you from afar for a long time to really benchmark your progress. And they'll take the time to do that because, you know, it's a very big decision for them to to put money into the company. So, for example, I remember um, our Series A lead investors, they're called Phoenix Phoenix Venture Partners, um, based out here in Silicon Valley. Um, I remember the first time one of their partners came to meet us, it was um, well within the first year that we started the company. They came to Berkeley, they saw our, you know, our small setup, like our small screen printer, our demos. Um, And we maintained a relationship with them for four years before they actually invested in our Series A when we were ready. So, um, you know, it's not often just like a quick thing that, you know, would just happen overnight. You really do need to cultivate these relationships and build trust and credibility. Um, So, you know, it's really important to um, invest in those relationships and also um, be able to articulate your progress over time. Um, uh, So I think that aspect of um, raising funding, I I hadn't really appreciated um, uh, how much it's like, um, you know, cultivating a, a really big group of friends or, you know, um, but you want, you want people to be rooting from you, uh, for, uh, rooting for you, even if they're not invested in you, because they very well down the line may, may be the ones that actually, you know, come in your corner and mm-hmm. invest. So, um, I hadn't appreciated how long it would take to, mm-hmm. to raise investment, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, very worthwhile though, because I think once these investors, um, said yes, they were really all in. They really believed in us. Is there, are there things that are different from raising your seed round through the A and now through the B? Yeah. I mean, in your seed round, you're pitching a vision. There's not much that you have under your belt other than for us, like, you know, we had some technical results. Um, we had a little bit of like IP, um, but we didn't have a lot of, you know, we didn't have a track record. Um, and so we were really telling stories and, and even into your series A, you're, you're still really pitching a vision, but maybe you have some validation from some customers that are at least resonating with what you can potentially build. Um, you, you might not have necessarily delivered anything to them yet or, um, and so you're still kind of at, in this sort of, um, infancy of, of your, your, your company and your vision, um, raising series B has been a completely different, uh, activity in that, um, you know, right now investors want to know what we've accomplished. And, um, they're a lot more diligent in looking at exactly how we accomplish things. Um, there's a, a lot of diligence around, um, the, our finances, um, any contracts that we've signed. So, um, you know, we're on the hook, um, and uh, we're very accountable now for, you know, our, our track record. So, um, to some degree, uh, it's a much more grueling and, and, and time intensive process, but it's also been really validating, um, to come out of that and for investors to, to say that they really believe in us and, and want to continue to invest. I think that's a real testament to what we've actually been able to accomplish. And we have, you know, real tangible things that we have done that we can showcase and be proud about. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely really escalated through each round in terms of accountability and and the depth of diligence that the investors are, are asking for. Mm. As you've raised these various rounds, what has that meant for the company as far as the team that you're able to hire, the, the product evolution? Yeah. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, I think... Um, through all of our our rounds and as we've kind of increased in terms of team size and resources, um, I think the number one thing that has happened that is enabling is that we've become more and more focused. Um, In the early days, we had a vision, um, but 
not a lot of things were really buttoned up or validated. And so there's a lot of, you know, trying things, learning very quickly, you know, pivoting onto new things. Um, in, in the, in the series A days, we were learning about our customers. We thought they wanted something, but it wasn't until we rolled up our sleeves and really did stuff with them that we realized actually they're, they're, they want something completely different and they didn't know how to articulate it. But, um, we need to go back to the drawing board a little bit and, and shift our roadmap to address what they need. And so there's, um, there's a bit of, of learning and a bit of, you know, a random walk in terms of just finding who resonates with you from a customer standpoint, partner standpoint, and also from a team standpoint. Um, going into our Series B, the last couple of years in particular for Imprint have been real landmark years because we decided to focus. We started to say, okay, some of these opportunities are really bubbling up to the top because um, they'll allow us to get to market quickly. Um, they'll give us um, brand validation and there are partners here that um, will, you know, um, will support us through our growth. Um, we need to focus on these specific opportunities. And so um, in that it's, it's funny because like as you get bigger and as the company gets a little bit more complex, your focus gets more mm. singular. Mm. Um, and, and so as a result, our team has really kind of come into harmony in terms of like our goals, our milestones. It's, it's almost, um, it's way more clear, you know, what we need to accomplish to get, you know, over those, uh, to get towards those big milestones, to get to the finish line, mm-hmm. essentially. So, um, so that's been the remarkable thing is um, we've really come into a lot more focus over time. Mm-hmm. I think we've learned a lot along mm-hmm. the way. Did you drive that focus or what, how did that happen? And do you wish you had done that sooner? Oh, yeah. Um, I wish... I could have said that I'm, you know, that I I was all knowing (laughs) and that I drove that forward. But actually what really happened was um, a number of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, you know, we were really good at, um, we were really good at attracting customers towards imprint energy. And um, it was clear that there was a lot of demand for what we were doing. And so as a result, we were signing up a lot of customer projects. And at one point, I think we had like seven different SKUs. So like one day we'd print a rectangle and the next day was a donut. And the Mm -hmm. next day was like a moon-shaped battery. And um, it was a a bit of a blessing that our technology is that flexible and it can do so many different things. But it was also a bit of a curse in that we were not really advancing any of these opportunities very quickly. We were just sort of incrementally moving each of them. And um, it was my team that came back to me and they were like, you need to stop signing up <laughs> all these different, crazy different accounts. Cause I would literally roll in, you know, at the beginning of the week and I'd be like, guys, I gotta, you know, I gotta like, look at this. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. I got a new customer, <laughs> you know, and they're just like, stop it. You know? So it was actually the feedback of my team. Um, you know, they're just like, uh, we're not making a lot of progress. And so, um, you know, kudos to them because I was so stuck in sales mode um, and, and deal-making mode that I, I didn't really see the um, the damage it was having on my team in terms of, you know, one, allowing them to understand what to focus on. And, you know, it, it spread the vision um, in a way where we weren't really advancing very quickly. So, um, you know, I'm really grateful that they were, honest in, in, um, in bringing back that feedback to me. Mm -hmm. I know this capital has allowed you to scale manufacturing, as you mentioned in the U S and Europe and Asia. Um, what has that process been like and what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are in the hardware space where, you know, you're not just writing code, you're actually developing a product? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the the short of it is it has it's, it's actually been quite challenging. Um, there are a lot of manufacturers that have the capability of doing this. So from like a technical and sort of capability perspective, um, we have lots of options. There's many many manufacturers that can make these batteries. Um, but kind of like investors, you need that right fit from a business and relationship standpoint. And it takes time to understand if you have that synergy, if you share the same core values. Um, Because, uh, you know, when you become partners with any one of these manufacturers, you're you're betting a lot, you know, um, that they will work, you know, hand in hand with you um, to make, you know, 
great, reliable products that you'd be proud to, to ship to customers. And so um, the challenge for us was that, you know, we had t- been talking to lots and lots of different manufacturers, um, but weren't many of them weren't really right-sized or maybe not in the right sort of business um, space or not ready or prepared to take on this opportunity. Um, not to say that down the line they, they, they wouldn't, but um, just for the stage that we were at, which was an early development stage um, without, you know, the validation of having done this, you know, in, at scale, there's really, um, I think, a very small subset of, of manufacturers that really had the appetite for that. So, you know, we spent a, quite a bit of time um, looking around, you know, pitching different manufacturers um, and having varied levels of success. Um, I have to say, though, when we did find one of the manufacturers that we work with really heavily right now, um, you know, we had a meeting with them and, you know, a week later we signed a contract and a week later we were in their facility. So, you know, when those things really do resonate and when they line up, it can happen very quickly. Um, but at the same time, for some of the manufacturers that where we didn't have that resonance, we've spent lots of cycles and lots of time just trying to convince and um, convince them to, to sign up to work with us. And, um you know, to, to varying levels of success, essentially. So um, I think a key thing is really trying to quickly understand if there's that business and relationship fit at the early stage and looking for that more so than, say, the technical or capability mm-hmm. fit. And for those manufacturers that are developing your product, what does the product look like today? Yeah, um, in terms of the batteries that we're making, um, so... Our, our manufacturer is literally printing batteries on the same print lines that um, are used to make the insides of electronics, print circuit boards. Um, and so they're literally printing big sheets of these batteries where a lot of uh, batteries, you know, are housed on, on a single sheet. Um, and they'll just do that day in and day out. Um, and then eventually um, our customers will take those batteries and integrate them into their products. Wow. How many batteries have you printed? Oh, uh, hundreds of thousands, I think, at this point. Yeah, we've we've shipped over fifty thousand batteries, and 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 you know through the development phases and whatnot, we've probably done a few hundreds of thousands um, to validate the process and learn about it more. So, wow. Can you talk about any key customers? Um, yeah, I can talk about one key customer and partner that uh, we talk about publicly. Um, they're called Semtech. They're um, a semiconductor leader uh, in the IoT space. They've um, made a lot of investments in enabling the Internet of Things, and in particular, um, things in where data needs to transmit over long distances, like on the order of meters and miles. Um, so they have this these incredible technologies, including radios that allow that data to transmit at, at really low power. And um, they... Uh, had the vision um, to pair their technology with ours. And so they saw this really strategic fit for every single radio um, uh, that they wanted to sell. Um, there would need to be a battery. And so, um, you know, we're really excited to help them enable that vision um, and deploy you know, battery powered sensors all over. And they're not just a customer, but an investor as well. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, they had, I, I got a chance to meet the CEO, which was incredible. And, um, he's been so, uh, generous with his time. And he told me that for about four years, he had been looking for a green safe battery. Um, you know, not just because, um, you know, that not just because it, it feels good, but because he didn't want to expose, you know, customers to unsafe batteries. And, so he he put his uh, he put his team out to to go look for us and when they found us you know he was all in um, and so they actually invested in the company and we appreciated both you know their investment but actually their you know their, their legitimate support um, they've talked about us publicly they've um, presented us to customers um, we continue to work together in partnership so really great partner. Mm-hmm. Where is Imprint Energy today as far as team size? You mentioned 50,000 mm-hmm. batteries deployed with customers. Um, yeah, where are you today? Yeah, um, we're 15 people full-time. Um, we've got you know a handful of other uh, part-time uh, contractors, consultants, interns as well. Um, we're based here in the Bay Area in Alameda, uh, really close to the Oakland Airport. And um, 
in addition to that, you know, an extension of our family is we work with manufacturers, um, not necessarily on our site, um, in different places in different countries. And so, you know, those teams help uh, enable the mass production of our batteries. How did you know how to do all of this? I know your dad was an entrepreneur, so you have him as a resource, but yeah, how did you know how to build the company? Oh, I didn't know anything. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, every day is a really hard day and, you know, you can't fathom the thing that's on your plate, but then you just wrestle that to the ground as best you can and then you move on <laughs> to the next thing that's on your plate. So, um, you know... I, I have to say, though, um, we're really lucky in that um, we've had some really great advisors, um, just people that have rallied around us and, and, and want us to succeed and have offered advice. And, um, you know, so through the years, we've had a lot of support from various mentors and advisors, and that's that's helped a lot. You said every day is a hard day. Yeah. Um, what was the single hardest day so far? And, and, and how old is the company? Yeah, um, we incorporated the company around Christmas 2010. So at the end of this year, we'll be about nine years. Nice. Yeah. So that, in addition to the time I spent in school, I've been thinking about batteries a long time. <laughs> yeah, almost 20 years. Yeah, and that's so, right. <laughs> um, in, in those nine years, yeah, what was the single hardest day? Yeah, um, yeah. again, lots of hard days. Um, but one really stands out to me um, when... Uh, my hardest day, I think, at Imprint was the day I found out I was pregnant. Um, so I, I have a one-year-old now. Um, so a little bit um, less than two years ago, I found out I was pregnant. And um, as much as that was like a joyful day and, and exciting, um, I was overwhelmed with fear and it became really paralyzing. Um I just didn't know how to keep it together. And um, all these sort of doomsday scenarios regarding imprints started to really pop in my mind. Um, but what were those scenarios? What was the fear? Yeah, you know, I think I think sometimes founders feel like um, without them, the ship won't persist. Uh, and probably the greatest gift having had to step away in my maternity leave is to realize that the ship keeps moving and actually probably operated more efficiently without me around. <laughs> so I'm kind of a distraction <laughs> at times. So, um, you know, there, there was that factor. I was actually in the middle of fundraising. Um, at the time we had a strategic round open too. And so, um, you know, literally I think, uh, a day, I think the day that I was about to go to the hospital, we were trying to get um, money wired in from an go investor. Go to the hospital to give birth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that morning, I remember calling one of our investors and I was like, um, the money needs to be wired today because <laughs> because <laughs> I might not be tomorrow. around. Yeah. And I won't be able to confirm the wire because oh I'll be in the hospital. Wow. Um, so, you know, it was a really, it was a really exciting time. Uh, and, and, um, but it was, uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of fear that things would just fall apart, um, and there was just a, a lot of fear of the unknown. Um, uh, but I think one of the one of the most sort of beautiful outcomes of that fear was um, I feel like I became a more authentic version of myself because before that point. Um, I kind of templated myself like other CEOs that way I was seeing on TV and and that I was meeting at these, you know, these network events. And I thought I'd have to be like, you know, like everything's fine and we're crushing it all the time. Um, but I started to be a more authentic version of myself. I started to express my fear and I started to, you know, um, communicate that I wasn't sure how things were going to, um, you know, uh, uh, work out. Um and in that process, a ton of people um, rallied around me, even people that I didn't know. They would spend an hour or two hours of their time just telling me their story. Um, uh, a lot of them were, you know, first time working moms. Um, and so through that process, I met a lot of people who aren't celebrated for the um, for the hard um, for the hardships that they've had to sort of overcome. Um, but those people are my heroes. Mm -hmm. You know, these are, um, a lot of new moms and new dads that had to go through something similar. And so, um, I found a lot of role models in that mm -hmm. process. And I wouldn't have found that if, if I hadn't really broadcasted, you know, um, my fear and, and emotions. And so I think that taught me a lot about, um, being a more authentic version of myself mm -hmm. as well and, and connecting with people and, and how that can um, create strength. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was actually a really formative time. Mm -hmm. 
What is the closest that you ever got to shutting things down? I know every yeah. guest we've had so far, it's either been, you know, months, weeks, days, or hours. Yeah. Has that been the case for Imprint? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's nothing to brag about, um, but it's it's happened a few times. Um, yeah, one of the one of the worst parts of being a um, a founder or, or running a company is that you have to open up the bank account and and look at the numbers dwindling. And um, you know, we've definitely been you know days away from from shutting down. You know, not weeks, not months, but like days. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's scary. Yeah, it's it's hard to function knowing that that's coming. Um, and you know, when you're faced with that, you do everything you can, you know, to to turn the ship around and to um, to make sure that we can survive another day. And 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 so um, we've been we've been lucky, but you know, we've also experienced those really really scary times. Um, and you know, it, I think it's it's a part of it to some degree. It sounds like you know every entrepreneur um, is familiar with that. Um, it's definitely an unsavory part of the job. Yeah. What advice would you have to entrepreneurs who are facing the reality of that? Um, talk to other entrepreneurs. Uh, there's there's resources. Um, there are people. You know, there are things that um, may ultimately be that thing that helps you keep the lights on for a couple more days mm-hmm. or a couple more weeks, and that might be just enough time to get that customer. You know. Um, project in or that grant. Um, we had a we had a scary incident where the government had shut down and we were supposed to get wired a grant. And our you know at the time we had really choppy cash flows. It was in, it was uh, in the early days of starting the company, and so we weren't sure if this check was going to come in, and we weren't sure if we were going to be able to pay our employees. So um, you know talk to other entrepreneurs because they've probably been through it, and there are some creative s- solutions that might help you extend life um, and. And, um, you know, you're not alone in it as well. So also even just knowing and hearing other people's stories, I think it'll just help you so that you're not paralyzed by that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, you just really kind of fixate on solving the problem as, mm-hmm. as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been your experience as a founder and CEO who is both a woman and Asian American, if and how has that affected your experience as yeah. a leader? Yeah, yeah. Um, in my industry, um, I rarely see anybody that looks like me or, you know, there's very few people that um, have my background or um, or have my upbringing. And so, um, you know, that can be tough at times, you know, um, uh, but I think one aspect, um, you know, being a female scientist in particular is that... Um, I've never had the luxury of leaning back and just letting things happen. I've always had to sell, and um, even as a technologist, um, uh, that's always that was always the case. And um, more than ever, um, it turns out I I love selling. <laughs> you know, like I love you know. And then so um, you know, I'll you know, in any situation, I will never lean back. I think that's that's kind of the bottom line, and I think that is a real strength in it all. Um, in, in having that, that background. So, you know, I'd love, I'd love, you know, to do more deals with, uh, a more diverse, um, population of folks. And I hope for that, that change in the future. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I'm going to do my best, um, to continue to sell and to, um, you know, to always sort of be present in that situation. Mm -hmm. What has it been like to be a founder, a partner and a parent all at the same time? Oh man, it's, it's hard. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. Um, and the reason is that, um, you know, even today I, when I'm away from my son, I miss him terribly. I, I pull out my phone in the middle of meetings. I just want to look at his face and I want to feel closer to him. Um, but when I'm with him at times, my mind starts wandering towards imprint and I want to move the next objective and I want to help the company move forward. And so, um, there's just this perpetual sense of restlessness. Um, you know, not, and I'm the type of person where when I, when I go into something, I like to be fully present. I like to be all in. And so, um, I think my new normal is realizing that, um, 
I'm not all in necessarily, but I'm doing the best I can in, in, on both sides. So, um, you know, I think that's still uh, a lesson in progress for me um, and something I'm getting used to. Um, and it's it's hard, but it's, you know, full of joy and full of excitement as well. Where will you and Imprint Energy be in five years? Yeah, um, hopefully we'll sh- have shipped millions of batteries um, and our batteries have helped every one of you um, make your lives better. And hopefully that's seamless. You know, um, hopefully processes are better. We make better decisions about our health. Um, Hopefully we've made better decisions about the environment and infrastructure because we've been able to provide more data. Um, So um, that's that's one hope. But I, I think in five years, I think more and more consumers will demand safer batteries, greener batteries. Um, and as a result, uh, it'll force product designers to have to choose um, better chemistries. And hopefully one of those chemistries are, is imprints as well. So, um, you know, that's that's my hope and vision for five years from now. Great. We're going to move into our high voltage round. Quick questions, quick answers. The first of which is, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> Yeah, I've um, I've been embracing being um, a mama bear. Uh, <laughs> I was in Canada over the summer. I saw a lot of grizzly bears, mm. so I think I was inspired. Um, but uh, yeah, they're 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 fiercely loyal. Um, you know, they're really nurturing to their their um, their babies, their kids, and I feel I've got I've like I've got imprint and 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 um, my son Aaron, and um, I'm just putting all sort of my my love and care into making sure they grow. What inspires you? Um, my team really inspires me. Uh, every time I think that um, something's not possible, they pull off something that seems like a miracle. Mm. Um, so they've taught me the the power of just putting a lot of um, really inspired, passionate, smart minds together to solving big problems. Mm. So I'm, I'm really inspired by their hard work and their tenacity. Mm. I know this is all you've done through school and now um, the nine years at Imprint, but if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Yeah. um, If I couldn't, if I couldn't do this, um, especially being a new mom, I think I would try to think about how to help working moms and build products that would actually really help them. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I'm just really inspired by my own hardships Mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if I had the time, I would think about that more and maybe build products that would help working moms. Very cool. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Um, I guess... Our first angel investor, my husband, <laughs> Jason. Um, yeah, and, and my parents, of course. Yeah. When have you failed? Oh, all the time, <laughs> every day. Um, but there is one failure that really stands out in my mind. Um, the first year I came to Berkeley, um, I, I had a really hard time transitioning. I was living away from home for the first time and I didn't know how to learn in class and study. Um, and I ended up actually failing a couple classes. Um, and it was really devastating, um, being like a straight A student in high school. Um, and so I remember meeting my undergraduate advisor, a professor in my department, and he looked at my transcript and then he looked up at me and he said, Christine, if this continues, um, the doors of your future will shut. And then he started pounding the table, <laughs> uh, mimicking doors shutting wow. uh, in my future. Yeah. And um, it was a really startling yeah. uh, and devastating conversation, but it woke me up. Mm. Um, and actually a few years later, I took his class. It was known as one of the hardest classes mm. in our department. I got an A plus in his class. Wow. So you what can recover as um, phase transformations like thermodynamics. Mm. Uh, so yeah. Tough class, but um, but you know I recovered and I learned and it woke me up and I think I was really grateful in the end. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was that was a pretty epic failure. <laughs> uh, what's the best investment you've ever made? Um, I I never regret investing time in in meeting people or um, deepening relationships with people. I just love people. I love learning about new things from strangers or just learning more about the people that I love that are around me. So um, I'm always happy to invest time in, in 
learning more about people in general. Mm. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Um, yeah, I, I used to think that companies were just groups of really smart people. Um, and I didn't think it was worth, you know, talking about, um, core values and company culture because I thought smart people just knew what to do. (laughs) Um, what I know now is that one of the probably the most important things a founder can do is actually sit down and really think about the company that you're trying to build, be really purposeful, um, write down those core values and talk about them and repeat them. And you can't repeat it enough and talk about that with your team to the point where you realize that you have resonance with everyone on your team because actually that that sort of connectivity becomes a really strong foundation for building an ever-changing and ever-growing company. Um, So I know that a lot of uh, founders in their early days, they kind of forego that exercise um, because there's so many other fires to put out. There's so many important things to do. Um, But I really would urge um, founders to think about that and, and to put in the effort and to, you know, continue to perpetuate that through the, the growth of the company. I think it's really important. What is your best quality? Oh, um, <laughs> I smile a lot. <laughs> I think, yeah. And I, I think, um, I love when people smile back. So yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Um, what is your worst trait? Oh gosh. Um, you're still smiling. <laughs> that might be it too. Yeah. I've been in some very like almost like life-threatening instances and I, I would still have like a smile there. So it might be confusing. Um, yeah, that, that might be it. <laughs> um, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Yeah. I've, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially in context of um, my son. I, I would love if Every leader in whatever organization, country, even group of people, um, if they really took their that privilege of being a leader seriously and um, were, you know, really wanted to be role models for everyone. I want to be able to point to um, people or introduce my son to people and be like, Hey, that is a hero of mine. Mm. Um, and I'm really excited to tell that person's story and I want him to be inspired on a daily basis. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I really hope for that in the world. I love that. That gives me chills. If there was just one person or a couple of people who are going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Yeah, it would be my parents. Um, I, I realized that through this experience, I feel like I understand them better. Um, I understand how hard it was for them now. Um, and I don't think I really appreciated that when I was in school and when my parents were going through it. So, you know, I just want them to know that um, because of this experience, I've, I realized like that I'm so proud of them. I know that they've been through a lot um, and they've accomplished a lot and I know how hard it was. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of them and I hope they, they hear mm-hmm. that. What is the hardest kind of help to ask for? Um, you know, it's funny cause uh, especially after um, I had my son, um, a lot of people actually offered to help, you know, uh, whether it was like to make a meal or to take on tasks. Um, um, and for me, maybe it's part of it, maybe it's just my personality, but I think a lot of founders are the same way. I, I felt like I had to do everything myself, even though the, the help was offered. And so for me, the hardest help to, to ask for was the help that was being offered. <laughs> like I, it's like I, it was, you know, people kept coming to me and, and, and wanting to help and, and I didn't have a mechanism in me to accept that. Mm. Um, you know, early on, um, when I had my son, I was trying to do everything. Um, I came back from the hospital and I cooked a three course meal, Mm. cleaned the house Mm. and was just trying to keep up life as usual. And of course, you know, things really broke down. It was just not sustainable. Mm. Um, And when I finally realized that there's this village that was, you know, around and that was trying to help and 
when I finally couldn't let them in, um, you know, that, that helped, that helped me recover and, and that helped, um, you know, us move forward. So, yeah, I think, uh, for me, at least, um, just saying yes to help that's being offered mm. has been a real struggle. Mm. Um, but it, it's made me better now. I, I, I really, um, I, I think many founders feel like they, they have to do everything and that's not the case and that's not the most scalable way to, to grow a company. Mm. Um, so I think that's also made me a better entrepreneur. Mm. If you could finish these sentences for me, companies fail because? Uh, lack of focus. I think we learned that lesson. <laughs> Success is? Uh, loving what you do. If you really knew me, you would know. Um, if you knew me, you would know that I'm a really wonderful, lovely morning person. <laughs> and I'm terrible at night. I'm a curmudgeon. Me too. <laughs> yeah, me the life too. is just being zapped out of me <laughs> by nighttime. Um, if I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Um, yeah, I would have accepted help sooner. Uh, I, I can see examples of that even from the get go. And, um, that could have, that would have changed a lot of, a lot of things. It would have made me more efficient. I would have built more trust in, you know, the people around me. So, um, yeah, accepting that helps sooner. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be, um, hopefully it's, it's my persistence and tenacity, um, I'm most proud of? Oh, I'm, I'm most proud of, I'm most proud of, um, what we're building. Um, you know, I used to hand paint batteries one at a time and, you know, we've, we've made hundreds of thousands of them now. And, um, you know, customers tell us that this is awesome and it's, it's delighting them. So I'm really excited for what we build and I hope we ship many, many more. <laughs> and last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Uh, it takes a lot of heart. I think you need very authentic love for what you're building, um, for the team and the partners that are building that with you, and for the customers that are going to benefit from that product. So um, it, it takes your entire heart. Hmm. I've loved this interview so much. Thank you so much for joining us on What It Takes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.